This morning's scripture reading is from John 12, verses 12 through 26. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done these, this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, That hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is the word of the Lord. I'm grateful to be with you all again and be able to study the scriptures once again this morning. Uh, thanks again for being with us. If you're new, we'd love to get to know you. Stick around and hang out outside with us after the service. If you're in person, if you're here virtually worshiping with us, we just would invite you to reach out. Um, maybe send an email to me or to the church. Um, and we'd love to get to know you as well. And if you're here again, thank you for being here again. That's part of what it means to be a church body and a family. And I look forward to Sundays every Sunday. Uh, I feel like sometimes I live Sunday to Sunday. And so this morning, together with the global and historical church, we're celebrating Palm Sunday, a day where we cry out with the crowds at Jerusalem, Hosanna, blessed be he who comes in the name of the Lord. Therefore, in honor of Palm Sunday and Holy Week, we're going to shift gears. We're going to move from the Psalms to the Gospel of John. And as we just read, uh, as was just read, Emily just read for us, chapter 12 is where we're going to begin on this morning on Palm Sunday. And then on Good Friday, we're looking at John 18. And then on Easter Sunday, we'll look at a scene in the garden with Mary Magdalene and Jesus in John 20. But John chapter, 20, chapter 12, excuse me, our passage this morning does offer us sort of a wonderful bridge, a continuity, a continuation of our themes of emotion and prayer. In this case, praise, a kind of prayer that expresses joy. But the feeling of joy actually works a lot differently than we think it does. And so I appreciate the way Eugene Peterson describes biblical joy for us. Joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It's a consequence. We cannot make ourselves joyful. Joy cannot be commanded. It can't be purchased or arranged. 
Joy is a product of abundance. It is the overflow of vitality. We can only decide to live in response to the abundance of God and not under the dictatorship of our own poor needs. And this really takes the cultural pressure off, doesn't it? All of a sudden, you don't have to not worry and be happy all the time. That's not what joy means. And Peterson's definition of joy also helps us ask good, hard questions. Like, how am I seeing God? And how am I seeing myself? But I'm getting ahead of us, as usual. So let me take a step back. Let's pray together for our time this morning in God's words to us. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the opportunity to open this passage up and to examine what you'd have us to hear. And Lord, would you be with our hearts and our minds? Would you give them an an openness to clamp down on your good words? And would you give uh, your preacher, your speaker here, (laughs) lots and lots of grace? Um, Lord, would um, you help me in some ways to get out of the way? And would you come and would you meet your people? And would you pursue us with your goodness? Would you pursue us with your nourishing words of eternal life? And I pray that that would make all the difference, that you, Jesus, would be more able in our lives to be seen. Would you pray that you would, I pray that you'd work inside out and you'd help us to see you, Jesus, high and lifted up, more believable and beautiful to the eyes of our hearts, we pray. In your name we pray, Jesus. Amen. So in the Harry Potter series, books, movies, uh, fan online dumb, whatever it is, uh, in the Harry Potter world, there's this mirror called the Mirror of Erised. I'm sure I'm messing that up, but Erised, Erised. Erised is just desire spelled backwards as if reflected in a mirror. Learned this on the internet. Uh, this mysterious mirror is found at Hogwarts Wizarding School in the Room of Requirement. And the engraving, again spelled backwards, tells us how the mirror of Erised works. I show not your face, but your heart's desire. I show not your face, but your heart's desire. That is, the mirror doesn't reflect back to the person their appearance, their face. The mirror instead reflects back the image of that person's greatest desire. And so when orphan Harry Potter discovers the mirror, he sees reflected back, not his own face, but his parents in living color. And when Harry shows his friend Ron excitedly, hey, come look at this mirror, and Ron shows up, he does not see Harry Potter's parents. Instead, Ron sees himself with every possible Hogwarts honor. Head boy, captain of the Gryffindor Quidditch team, holding the Quidditch championship trophy. Yes, Ron loves Quidditch, which I don't know how to explain in a sermon in less than 30 minutes, but essentially it's just a game like hockey on brooms where you're flying. Okay, that's where I'm gonna stop. But Albus Dumbledore, uh, Hogwarts' headmaster and Harry's mentor, he looks in the mirror two separate times. And he looks and sees two separate things in this mirror of Erised. Because like all of us, Dumbledore's greatest desire changes over time. And so first he sees his best friend alive again, and then years later, Dumbledore sees his own fully restored family. The point is this. The point is, a person looking into this mirror doesn't see reality, his or her own face. A person looking into that mirror sees a different dream. Each of them sees a different dream. What he most or she most desires. In our passage this morning in John chapter 12, we read about four different groups of people seeing Jesus. And each group of people 
doesn't see reality, doesn't really see Jesus. Instead, they see their own dreams for Jesus. That what they most desire, what they most desire from him. And this is not just true of a snapshot in history circa AD 33. Even people today, we too can do this. We can envision a Jesus who's not real, but a dream, who doesn't disagree with us, but instead embodies what we most desire him to be about. Jesus is only about truth, or Jesus is only about love. He's definitely on the political left. No, 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 he's definitely on the political right. No, 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 no. Jesus is not about politics at all altogether. Our passage pushes us into the reality of who Jesus actually is. And Jesus is awash in in these misunderstandings of who he is and who he actually is and the request to see him. And it's so interesting, he speaks these words in the midst of that pressure, that pull. Verses 23 and 24. The hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. In his own words, Jesus is all about the glory of the cross. And so according to John chapter 12, verses 12 through 26, seeing Jesus is seeing the God who became a man and died. Seeing Jesus is seeing the God who became a man and died so that we might have eternal life. We see Jesus so that we might have eternal life. Really the rest of our time together this morning is just gonna be spent unpacking just what it means, about what Jesus' death means and our eternal life means. And we're gonna do this by changing perspectives, by taking the stance and sitting in the sandals of these different people. And so our sermon outline will take us through different groups of people seeing Jesus. And each of them sees Jesus differently. And we're gonna ask who's looking and what are they looking for? And I hope you're gonna join me in asking yourself, what, what am I looking for and am I looking? So first, verses 12 through 15, verses 17 through 18, we're gonna look at the crowd and how they see Jesus as a revolutionary. Second, in verse 16, we're gonna look at Jesus' disciples and how they later see Jesus as the Messiah. Verse 19, we're gonna look at the Pharisees and the way that the Pharisees see Jesus as a threatening thrill. And verses 12, 20 through 22, we're gonna look at the Greeks and now they see Jesus as an intellectual curiosity. And finally, in verses 12, 23 through 26, we're gonna look at Jesus and see how he sees himself as the ultimate sacrifice. So let's begin with verses 12 through 15 and 17 through 18. And we're gonna address the question, who's looking at Jesus? And the answer is a whole lot of people. It's a crowd we see here. Okay? And we can figure out that this crowd is most likely made up of Jewish religious pilgrims coming to Jerusalem. And we could reason this from the timing of this scene during the festival of the Passover when Jews from all over that known world would come to Jerusalem to celebrate that time when God freed them from Egyptian slavery, the Passover. Okay? And then after that, it also stands to reason from a later reference to some Greeks in contrast to the Jewish Pharisees in verse 19, the Jewish disciples in verse 16, that this group of people gathered at the gate is mostly Jewish. It's a mostly Jewish crowd. And finally, this crowd is quoting Psalm 118, 
Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. Psalm 118 is a psalm traditionally sung by pilgrims, Jewish pilgrims to Jerusalem, even during the feast of Passover. But we also know that this crowd is at least mostly Jewish pilgrims because they're waving palm branches at a man they're calling king. And it's really important to unpack what that means. And these palm branches move us to that second question. What is this crowd looking for? What are they looking for? Yes, waving palm branches and shouting Hosanna's, oh, save us now, is what Hosanna means, at the top of your lungs is an expression of enthusiastic joy or praise. But it's also a certain kind of joy. Waving palm branches at somebody returning to Jerusalem is a ceremonial rite. It's what Jewish people did for victors over foreign powers. Simon and Judas Maccabee were greeted this way at the entrance to Jerusalem when they had defeated the Greek, the Greek Seleucid Empire. And later, 30 years after Jesus' death, palm branches were again minted onto Jewish coins during the Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire. So it's safe to say that the crowd is seeing Jesus as a military revolutionary. Come to war against the Roman Empire that occupies Jerusalem and Israel to bring violence and not peace. A sudden regional change in political power, not a gradual global spiritual renewal movement of all people's tribes and tongues. The crowd totally missed the signs that Jesus planted and orchestrated for his entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus purposely sits on a donkey symbolizing peace, but the crowd greets that with war chants. He replaced, he perfectly placed the invitation to eternal life and resurrection with this entry coming on the heels of raising Lazarus from the dead. But people replaced that, the crowd replaced that with a palm branch victory tunnel. And we can sympathize with this crowd. We live in tumultuous times. We too experience or at least witness regular injustices. We too fear for political rights. And so it can be very easy to see Jesus as a political tool, a means to an end. And yes, Jesus does care about personal freedoms as well as societal justice. And, and Christians are called to a politically active life, especially in a democracy. But Jesus is not less than political. He's more than political. Jesus came to earth and died and was raised from the dead for a peace that is not just between people, but for a peace that will fully dwell within people and between us and God and God in all of creation. And so the crowd's desires for Jesus and sometimes our desires for Jesus contain partial truths. There's some good longings there, but the good longings are stopped short or miss the signs altogether. And the crowd understood Jesus as a king, but he, they understood it and sometimes we understand him as the wrong kind of king. And verse 16 tells us Jesus' own disciples did the same thing until Jesus was glorified. Only then did the original followers of Jesus see the prophesied Messiah, our second point. The disciples who daily followed Jesus and listened to Jesus most likely grabbed the palm branches and shouted against Roman rule, just like the rest of the crowds. But later the disciples couldn't unsee something. They couldn't unsee the crucifixion when Jesus is first glorified, when he's first lifted up from the earth on a cross. 
The disciples can't unsee the ascension when Jesus' glorification is completed and Jesus was lifted up from the earth again, but this time goes all the way into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father with angels and authorities and powers being subjected to him as well as indeed interceding for us or so Romans chapter eight and 1 Peter chapter three tell us. And witnessing Jesus' glory makes the disciples see what kind of king Jesus truly is. Yes, he rules everything. He rules everyone. But Jesus is also our present comfort in life. Jesus is also our future hope in death. He's the long-predicted Messiah, the prophet, priest, and king, who is rescuing us from the evil within the evil between us, the evil that estranges us from God and from all that is from God. Jesus is a hero the Old Testament prophets like Zechariah are predicting, but he's also the hero that our cultural stories cry out for. He's like all of the Marvel Avengers wrapped up into one. But just like for his first disciples, seeing Jesus this way, comes on his followers gradually, all of us by stages, often with large jumps in insight, see Jesus more clearly. This metaphor of how sight works is pretty personal for me recently. As many of you know, I had eye cancer a few years ago in my left eye, and to kill the cancers that was there, the cancerous tumor, the doctor had to radiate my eye. Sadly, I hate to break the news, but large doses of radiation do not turn you into a Marvel superhero. I don't have laser vision. Uh, instead, radiation caused my eyesight over time to get worse. In fact, this past year, I went from 2020 vision in my left eye all the way below 2060 vision within the course of a year. And two Mondays ago, though, I had cataract surgery, old man that I am. And roughly 24 hours after that, I was at a 10-year-old soccer practice and it was like, boom, the world was like suddenly alive, suddenly with color, stunning black and white moved to technicolor, right? Two-dimensionals popped out like a pop-up book. I was at a 3D fest. It was just amazing. Greens and whites and blues just popped out at me like I'd never seen or felt like I'd never seen. But my close-up vision was still blurry until a doctor recommended I get reading glasses. And then all of a sudden, the words did the same thing that the colors did. And they popped out really close to me. And books, like, they just popped up into focus and touchable texture almost. And I could only imagine that verse 16 is actually getting at this kind of process with people. This kind of thrilled feelings that that evokes. After seeing Jesus' crucifixion and ascension to God's right hand, Jesus went from 2D to 3D, from black and white to technicolor for John and the other disciples. And so Jesus comes into focus and fuller texture for everyone who follows him. But it happens over time, right? And it happens also all of a sudden often. We see Jesus as he is. He gains in focus as he becomes less and less about what we desire and more and more about who he is, which over time match up more and more. And because our understanding of Jesus grows like this, you and I need to be patient. We need to be patient trying to understand exactly what God is doing. And because our understanding of Jesus grows like this, we need to be humble, refreshing our view of who Jesus is by reading and rereading the scripture's accounts of him from the New and Old Testaments. 
But verse 19 is a sobering reminder that not everyone can actually see Jesus, the actual Jesus. The Pharisees are these firsthand eyewitness observers of Jesus and his ministry. But who is Jesus and what he's about got blinded for the Pharisees by his threat and his thrill, which is our third main point. You see, the Pharisees were these great populist politicians and preachers of the first century. They had this message of living by the law that captivated so many people. And here's why. We live in an uncertain world and they promised certainty. The Pharisees offered certainty, telling everyone just how to live every moment of every day. They answered for God in explicit detail. What we all want answers for, but God's word doesn't exactly tell us. So the Pharisees said, hey, I'll help you out. Here, Jewish people, here's who to vote for. Hey, Jewish people, here's how far is too far. Finally, someone answered that question, sexually and otherwise. Or here's what career to pursue. Or here's, when to, here's where to live. Or how do you raise your children so that they succeed at life? Promise guaranteed. This is what the Pharisees were offering and this is why it was so attractive. But Jesus threatened the Pharisees' answers. They offered teachings, so many rules to live by. Jesus offered the teacher a personal relationship. The Pharisees offered a script to memorize. Jesus offered a chance to fall in love. And so of course, the Jewish people were swept up into the life and joy of Jesus. And so in that palm frond filled moment, the Pharisees teach, turn to one another and mutter, verse 19. You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. The world has gone after him. And the Pharisees are right. It's not just the Jewish people who are going after Jesus. It is the whole world that's going after Jesus. Even then, starting with the group of Greeks in verses 20 through 22, who also see Jesus, but they only see Jesus as a curiosity. And this is our fourth main point. Verses 20 through 21 suggest that they're a group of Greek God-fearers. That is like these Greeks who are ethnically Greek who have yet to, to become Jewish and not fully converted to Judaism, but they're there in this mostly Jewish crowd to see Jesus at his triumphal entry. And this group of religious and ethnic outsiders, remember the Jews do not like the Greeks because of history. We just talked about the Maccabees. So this group of religious and ethnic outsiders pull Philip aside, thinking to get a sympathetic ear because he's from sort of the same general region, like the Greek dominated region called Decapolis, east of the Jordan River. And regardless, Philip relays the Greek god message to Andrew and Andrew relays that message to Jesus. And here's what the message is in verse 22. It's a beautiful message. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Most biblical commentators agree that they're asking not just to like lay their eyes on Jesus, but they're asking for an interview. They're asking for an audience with Jesus, to meet personally with him, for Jesus to field a few curious questions. And Jesus' response in verses 23 through 26 since the Greeks are merely trying to fit Jesus into a familiar philosophical system. But to quote Paul in the first letter to Corinthians, Jesus is foolishness to the Greeks. Theologian Leslie Newbigin expands on why, because Jesus's upcoming crucifixion is absurd to Greek philosophy. 
And Jesus is Lord only if sovereignty is defined by Calvary, the place where Jesus died. And eternal life is the life of God himself, the true goal of all history, both personal and public. That is, Jesus isn't this sort of curious bit of data to fit into a system of thought. Jesus is a whole new framework, a whole new way of seeing God and ourselves and this world. He is the thing that organizes and interprets all the data that we see. But these Greek God-fearers did did get something fundamentally right. They asked for the one necessary thing, the certain portion, the good portion, to wish to see Jesus. John Newton and so many of our older hymn writers are so good at directing our hearts to gaze upon Jesus, to move our eyes away from the ups and downs of our personal performance and to swivel them swiftly to Jesus and his beauty. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wondrous face, wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. And thou lovely source of true delight, whom I unseen adore, unveil thy beauties to my sight that I might love thee more. Oh, that I might love thee more. For Paul Miller, this spiritual practice of gazing at Jesus looked like slowly, repeatedly, and inefficiently reading the gospel accounts of who Jesus was and what he did. During a hard time in his job and his family life and his marriage, what felt like one long lament Paul Miller talks about hour upon hour wishing to see Jesus and returning to his scriptures, training his eyes on the scriptures. And over time, what emerged for Paul Miller was how much Jesus looks at people, how attentive he is to the people around him, how patiently he listens and draws people out, all in order not to miss the person in front of him. And perhaps not surprisingly, the more that Paul Miller saw Jesus seeing people, the more he, Paul Miller, felt seen by Jesus. And the more he actually was able to see and love the people around him, like his wife, Jill. And it's this idea of seeing Jesus seeing you that leads to our last and fifth point. You didn't believe I could get there. Jesus' self-description in verses 23 through 26. Jesus is answering the Greeks' wish to see him with a very unusual and somewhat off-putting parable. Listen to it again. He's speaking in the third person, confusing, and Jesus is speaking of his crucifixion. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, first person, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus is saying his death on a cross is the beginning of his hour of glorification. That Jesus' ultimate act of sacrifice, giving up his life to give us eternal life. That this shows forth God's glorious love. God's glory is nearly naked agony by death on a cross, not a fireworks show. And this is because like a seed, Jesus must die and be buried to produce fruit, fruit like life for us. I love the way that author Flannery O'Connor puts it in her book, Mystery and Manners. This is the central Christian ministry, mystery, excuse me, the central Christian mystery, 
that human life has for all its horror been found by God to be worth dying for. And now we have seen who Jesus really is. Jesus' words in verses 25 to 26 help us apply who Jesus is to our heart's desires. Those moments when we stand in front of the figurative mirror of a recent. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Here, Jesus is teaching us something so simple to say and so hard to do. Surrender. Surrender. Surrender like Jesus does, like a grain of wheat does in the ground. And there's a lot I could say about this, but maybe just ask yourself a few questions. Where do I need to surrender right now? Where do I need to surrender right now? And what goal do I need to let go of or hold a lot less tightly? What goal do I need to let go of or hold a lot less tightly? You see, Jesus' gift of eternal life, the life of God himself, is the true goal of all history, right? It's meant to take away our fears of suffering and even our fear of physical death. I recently read a book I've been meaning to read for a long time. Been on a shelf, I've owned it for a long time. It's called Tuesdays with Maury. I don't know if you've read this book, it's a bestseller. In it, the author, Mitch Album, visits his former professor, Maury Schwartz, who's dying of ALS, known as Lou Gehrig's disease. And during one of their last weekly Tuesday conversations, Maury shares a story with Mitch, the author. Maury says, the story is about a little wave bobbing along in the ocean, having a grand old time. He's enjoying the wind and the fresh air until he notices the other waves in front of him crashing against the shore. My God, this is terrible, the wave says. Look what's going to happen to me. And then along comes another wave. It sees the first wave looking grim. And it says to him, why do you look so sad? And the first wave says, you don't understand. We're all going to crash. All of us waves are going to be nothing. Isn't it terrible? And the second wave says, no, you don't understand. You're not a wave. You're part of the ocean. Mitch Album writes, I smile. Maury closes his eyes again part of the ocean, he says, part of the ocean. I watch him breathe in and out, in and out. What Jesus is saying here in John chapter 12 finishes that story and it moves us from fatalism into Christian surrender. Jesus is telling us our lives, yes, are like little waves (laughs) and yes, they will all eventually crash into death's shore. But you and I, we don't understand. We can't quite see it. Because of Jesus, we're these little waves in the giant ocean of God's love. The Holy Spirit breathes us in and out, in and out. And so Eugene Peterson once again helps us to understand how joy truly feels this side of heaven. Christian joy is not an escape from sorrow. Pain and hardship still come, but they are unable to drive out the happiness of the redeemed. There is plenty of suffering on both sides, past and future. The joy comes because God knows how to wipe away tears. 
and in his resurrection work, create the smile of new life. The smile of new life. The smile of new life. Would you pray again with me? Father, thank you for this teaching. Um, Help us to see you as you are and what you want us to see. Father, I pray that you would use these words. Comfort, challenge, do both. We're in your hand. We're a little wave in an ocean of love. In your name we pray. Jesus, amen.